Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for joining us near and far. We're so glad you're here with us for this very important uh, conversation today, um, a very pressing moral and political and legal issue um, that many have been talking about in New York City and beyond, which is not only relevant to our society and to people's lives and to the Jewish community, but to how we think about law and how we think about regulation and how we think about religion in America. And um, we hope you will um, enjoy and engage with us wherever you are. We'll be managing the live stream as well. Um, and we'll be posting some articles in the chat. I'm delighted to hand this over to my colleague, Jessica Morris, who's gonna introduce our two panelists today and, and get us started. Thank you, Rabbi. Welcome everyone. My name is Jessica Morris and I really am honored to serve as the host for tonight's conversation between Rabbi Yehusker Katz and Professor Avi Helfand. We're going to start tonight with a quick introduction to who these guests are, and then we're going to hear each of their opening remarks and responses, followed by a Q&A and final thoughts. Rabbi Katz is the chair of the Department of Talmud at YCT. He received ordination in 1986 from Rabbi Yeheskel Roth, Dayan of UTA Satmar and studied at Yeshivat Bet Yosef for over 10 years. Rabbi Katz is a graduate of Hashahar's program for Jewish educators and has taught at the Mayanot Yeshiva High School for Girls and SAR High School. He left the Satmar community and is strongly in favor of the government enforcing secular studies. I'm also excited to introduce Professor Avi Helfand. Professor Helfand is the Brendan Mann Foundation Chair in Law and Religion and co-director of the Newt Ba'ar Institute for Law, Religion, and Ethics at Pepperdine Caruso School of Law. He is visiting professor and Oscar M. Rubhausen Distinguished Fellow at Yale Law School and senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. We will start this conversation by hearing his opening remarks. Professor Helfand, the floor is now yours. Uh, pleasure to be here with you. Um, what is for me this late afternoon and for you this evening, um, coming in from the West Coast. Um, and uh, when uh, uh, Rav Shmuley asked me to participate, um, I puzzled a bit over what I might say um, with respect to the ongoing controversy of the extent to which um, government can uh, regulate non-public schools. I'm a legal scholar, so you know my interest in this is by and large um, thinking about the law, how American law um, provides space or doesn't provide space for certain types of uh, behaviors and activities when it comes to religious communities and religious institutions. So I'm going to stick to that, um, and I'll do my best to kind of lay out some of the groundwork. Uh, I see there's an article posted in the chat where I did a little bit of this just try to give um, people a flavor as to how the law might work in this area. So, you know, when you think about what is it, what is the legal issue that um, courts might have to deal with when thinking about the controversy around, you know, how much education must a, or what kind of education must a non-public school and a religious non-public school provide to its students? You know, much of this debate um, surrounds the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. One of the things the 14th Amendment provides, it provides a certain degree, at least on most accounts, a certain degree of liberty in, I would say, traditional areas to families. And one of the core areas in which it provides this kind of legal protection is when it comes to the upbringing of children, the way in which and the manner in which parents make choices around raising their children. And to some extent, there is some protection provided to parents to make various kinds of choices. You know, the Supreme Court in the early 20th century tried to capture this idea um, when dealing with um, uh, state laws that prohibited parents from sending kids to private school. You know, you can imagine a state waking up one morning and saying, all children have to go to public schools. And in the early 20th century, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Uh, parents have to have, parents have the right to choose a private school as opposed to a public school. You know, by contrast, on the flip side of the equation, there are some areas where the government clearly has the ability to regulate the choices parents make regarding their children. You can see, hopefully, how, you know, these ideas, these rules, these applications of constitutional protections, you know, apply to these ongoing controversies around, you know, what kind of education must certain Jewish schools provide, and especially, again, things that have been going in 
uh, going on in New York of late related to that um, controversy. And so um, certainly in states around the country, there are compulsory education laws. You know, the state regulates how long, for example, families must send their children to school. And so the question I want to kind of start this conversation off with is to note there clearly are some things that the state can do and some things that the state can't do. And the question is, how do we draw the line? How does the law draw the line when it comes to those types of decisions? And I want to really try to think about, you know, the way in which we articulate this line has a lot to do with what we think the purpose of education is. And so in many ways, you know, the legal issue um, really relies on a pedagogical issue. Uh, what is education for? And therefore, in what uh, circumstances can the state say families, parents, institutions, communities, you must do this? And at what points do we say the state has no right to demand those kinds of requirements? So that's the that's the question. Um, and obviously, this is in the context of what's going on now in, as I mentioned, in New York related to, in particular, Hasidic education. So let's take New York as an example, um, what the law requires in New York, and, and hopefully that'll help tease out some of these issues. In New York, there's a rule, it's been on the books for over 100 years, that requires non-public schools to provide an education um, that is substantially equivalent non-public schools, or at least parents sending their children to non-public schools, those children must receive an education that is substantially equivalent to what they receive in public schools. Now, when you say substantially equivalent, you're, you're begging for a fight, right? Because you haven't defined a ton. It, it has to have a lot of things in common, but not everything in common. You know, what does it have to have in common? The states tried in recent years to provide some content to what this might mean. And in many, when we talk about, when people talk about New York State's requirements, they often talk about the big four, you know, math, science, English, and history. Those are four um, subject matter areas where children are required to receive um, significant education akin to what they would receive in public school. New York also adds like a whole bunch of other stuff, um, eight other, oh, I should probably pull up a list, eight other various kinds of requirements. Um, and here you get to see kind of the full breadth of like what New York has in mind. So they have to provide instruction here. I'm going to read from a fun list. I have, do not have this memorized. Um, instruction in patriotism and citizenship, the history, meaning, significance, and effects of the U.S. Constitution and the New York State Constitution, um, instruction in New York State history and civics, physical education and kindred subjects, um, in addition, also some instruction in health education regarding alcohol, drugs, tobacco, etc. Um, they also highway safety and traffic regulation, fire drills, and in fire and arson prevention, um, hands-only cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And uh, I think there's one more that I forgive me, I don't seem to be remembering off the top of my head. Hopefully this gives you a sense of like, if you were a state bureaucrat and you said to yourself, I wanna make sure there's a substantially equivalent education, what might it look like? New York State has kind of thought about this as the big four. And then in addition, all these other additional things, which all sound, I don't know, honestly to me, if I were sitting and educating my kids, they all sound quite good. Um, I would love for my child to know everything on that list um, of additional subjects. You know, can the state do this, though? Now, how should we think about that? The 14th Amendment says that parents have to have the liberty to make certain choices regarding the uh, how in which they raise their children. On the flip side, the limit to that um, freedom, to that liberty right provided by the 14th Amendment is instances where government says there is something extremely important that we must impart to children. And at least this is how New York courts understand it. The least intrusive way to accomplish these really important goals is to force both public and non-public school children to receive a certain kind, certain um, subject matter education. Well, what is the really important thing that the state is trying to do in the context of education that might justify it overriding the rights of parents to make choices about how they would like to or not like to raise their children? Um, since I would say the 1950s, and really in Brown v. Board of Education is one of the um, uh, Supreme Court cases there, 
um, where the Supreme Court articulated what these really important interests are, the court identified and has subsequently identified two major areas, things that are so important that when drawing the line between what parents have the right to choose and don't have the right to choose, these are the two overriding considerations. The first one is economic self-sufficiency. Um, the state must make sure that it has rules in place that ensure every citizen, every child within its jurisdiction can be economically self-sufficient. The second one is the capacity to be an engaged citizen. Uh, think about voting, serving on juries, an education that provides the building blocks to make those things possible. And then at least New York state courts, the way they think about this is as follows. Well, what is the least intrusive way that we can accomplish those goals? That's kind of how the law looks at these questions. Um, we don't wanna do more than we have to do, the law says, but we wanna make sure these compelling government interests are in fact achieved. And so you can imagine yourself saying the following. Well, of course, to be um, economically self-sufficient and civically engaged as a citizen, you need to know things like math and science and English and history. And then you might look at the additional eight subjects and you say, those all sound important. Although you might imagine some folks uh, having a quibble here and there over how many of the eight are really necessary. I have a confession for all of you listening. I did not learn in high school the provisions of the New York State Constitution. I didn't. I don't know what they all, all of them, what they all say. And I still think I'm economically self-sufficient, thankfully, and I believe myself to be civically engaged. And you might imagine a parent saying the following. Um, I like the big four and I like seven out of eight, but I don't think my child should have to learn exactly what it is the New York State Constitution might say. You could imagine other kinds of debates around the eight, what exactly is arson prevention, other kind of uh, uh, examples from the you know, eight additional subjects under one of them, there's a requirement to learn uh, under New York state law about the um, Irish potato famine, which again, I don't think I learned a ton about in high school. Um, and so you might imagine people quibbling. Now, why are these quibbles important? You know, the quibbles are important because, you know, one of the puzzles you're dealing with in this area is you're dealing with the political process. And that political process is creating a set of rules that are geared towards achieving certain compelling government interests. And the realities of the political process are that they don't always result in creating a list of required subjects that perfectly track the compelling interests that the government has in this area. You know, sometimes folks, when they're enacting legislation, they're just things that they'd like to happen, even if they don't think they're necessary in order to achieve things like economic self-sufficiency and civic engagement. Um, and so the political process sometimes goes awry. It's not always run by educators um, who end up making these lists. The reason why focusing on the objectives of education and highlighting the way in which somebody might quibble with what New York State has provided as a list of what is required in order to provide a substantially equivalent education is because I think parents and, and communities, uh, people who run institutions, people who are civically engaged, um, need a way to think about both what they demand the government do in order to hold schools accountable, but also have a method, a methodology in order to identify when the state has gone too far. How we draw principled lines when it comes to the kind of education we want to make sure the state provides every single child. You know, otherwise we end up in debates over, I don't know, we just make lists of things we like. But the way in which 14th Amendment doctrine, at least the way in which it's interpreted by New York state courts provides us with tools. It requires us to think deeply about what it is we think education ought to provide as a legal matter. I actually quite like the two, the big two, so to speak, the pillars um, first announced by the court in Brown v. Board of Education, economic self-sufficiency and civic engagement, and then really ask questions about whether or not the list of things we have are things we just like or things we think are necessary in order to achieve those objectives. And you might say to yourself, after you look at the list of what exists under New York state law right now, or what's it required by the new regulations, you may, may think that the government got it quite right. The way in which you would justify that is by using this methodology. It provides the language with which we might talk about, you know, what, what schools should and or must do. 
And it also provides us a way to say, well, maybe here we think the government is telling us things that they sound quite nice. I'd love my child to learn stuff about, I think, arson prevention. I'll be perfectly candid. I'm not sure what arson prevention is because um, there's also already fire drills in it. So this is, has nothing to do with fire drills. Okay, whatever it might be, arson prevention. Um, but I might think that it would also be okay to run a school that doesn't require that. And I guess here's the kicker. The kicker is if you don't follow the rules, for example, in New York State, um, as um, uh, detailed right now, uh, New York State has the right to close the school. Now, if you said to me, should the state have a right to close the school if the school fails to teach its students about the provisions of the New York State Constitution, I would say, I think I feel confident saying, I think that would be government overreach. I think that would be the government going too far in doing that. Now, the big stuff, I mean, that seems relatively straightforward and easy. The smaller stuff, you might say again, that this is nitpicking. But the nitpicking is important because I think, as we know from various areas of study, I mean, the study of Jewish law and life is in many ways, many ways functions this way. These kinds of examples help us test our intuitions and build a formidable line that both ensures that the government holds communities accountable and at the same time clearly details when the government has gone too far. Uh, to me, that's kind of the method and the way in which we might approach this issue. Um, and in this way, it's not whether we're pro or anti-regulation, but how do we articulate the values of education at the core of government's responsibility? And how do we tell what is necessary, essential, what is essential to making sure we have citizens that are economically self-sufficient and civically engaged? And also both for now and for what comes in the future, um, knowing uh, how we can say when the government has, the political process has pushed for things that maybe maybe, maybe, maybe end up violating the rights of parents and families. Thank you so much for sharing, Professor Helfand. Rabbi Katz, we would like to hear your opening remarks now. Sure, and uh, I want to echo, echo Jessica's um, response. Thank you, Professor Helfand. For, uh, thank you, Avi, uh, for this uh, informative uh, presentation. Uh, I don't have any legal background, so for me, this is all new and uh, very helpful. Um, I will talk about um, uh, several points, but mostly about the role of government, but just from a very different um, angle, from a very different perspective. Uh, for those who uh, are listening and don't know, I did grow up in that community, although I don't know, I no longer um, am part of the community in the sense that I don't raise children in that community. I mean, otherwise I'm still part of the community in the sense that I have family, I spend time there, I have a lot of family there. Um, so I want to kind of look at the question of government intervention from a cultural slash communal perspective. So uh, I will start first with um, understanding what really is at stake here and what was really the conversation. Um, we're just in the shadow of uh, Purim and the Megillah, and uh, we're about to say goodbye to Chodesh Adar. And I'm reminded, actually, of an interesting um, discussion between, I think it was the Chafetz Chaim, but I might mix him up with uh, a different person. They might have been the Svasemes. But this goes back to an earlier round of this debate when the government, again, uh, wanted to introduce um, secular studies um, to Jewish schools. And I think it was in Poland, and it was a big debate. And then the Megillah came up. And uh, again, I'm forgetting the names, but one of them said to the other person, look, uh, the only way that the story of Megillah happens is because because um, uh, Mordechai understood Persian and he was able to eavesdrop on what Big Son was saying. So you see, you need to learn um, you know, secular languages. So that's how the Jews were saved. And I don't remember who he was who kind of quipped and said, no, have <laughs> If Bixen Vesarish knew that Jews know Persian, they would have been careful when Mordechai is around. They assume that Mordechai, like the other Jews, doesn't speak other languages, and that's why they felt free to talk in front of uh, Mordechai. So anyway, so there's some basis for this conversation um, um, in the Megillah that we just read. I think that I think that a big part of what informs the Haredi community's opposition is a historical um, suspicion of the government, right? Uh, in, in historically, people were very suspicious of government government attempts for acculturation, and in fact, um, in the past, people felt that this is something that um, 
you have to fight for tooth and nail. Um, in fact, there were people who argued uh, certain, you know, um, stages in history that this is kind of considered what's called in the Gemara Arkes de Messana, right? That sometimes if the government wants to impose what shoelaces you should wear, you have to die rather than, you know, kind of uh, concede to the government. It's Yeharag Va'al Yavor. Um, I don't want to kind of, you know, take up too much time about that, but those of you who have seen uh, the way Yer uh, Hasidim dress where they have their their pants tucked into their socks, like partially, there's a history to that. Uh, the story is that they actually wore their socks the way other Hasidim wear their socks all the way to the knee. And then the government, as part of their attempt to acculturate Jews, kind of said, now we're going to stop that. And some Gara Hasidim thought again, the government wants us to acculturate, and acculturation will lead to assimilation, and we'll fight that. And ultimately, there was some kind of compromise that they were not going to kind of have their socks all the way to their knee but they'll still kind of have their socks over their pants. There's a little history there as well. And I think to some degree, that history, that kind of suspicious history um, plays a big role. Um, for those of you who know the story of Elijah Yeshiva, the Elijah Yeshiva, at least according to some versions, and I know scholars dispute that, but at least to some versions, or certainly at least according to the uh, Haredi version, the Yeshiva of Lajan was closed down because the government's insistence on teaching secular studies, right? Uh, the legend goes, the legend is that um, for a long time, the Nitziv fought back and they tried to kind of, you know, fool the government and then and, and kind of pretend that they kind of teach secular studies. And when ultimately he failed, the story is, at least the way I've heard it, is that he went to the roof of the of the yeshiva and he took the key, took the little key to the yeshiva and he threw it up and it says, I try to do my best to provide a Jewish education for my students. I know that if I have to introduce secular studies, uh, then that would no longer be possible and I have to close the yeshiva. Uh, I, I know that um, scholars have challenged that version. Um, um, I think Etkis and uh, and um, another scholar, Muntadema, I'm blanking, have kind of said that this is kind of more of a uh, a, uh, a apocryphal story. It doesn't matter. That's the story that uh, most of us in the Haredi community grow up with. Uh, that for years, Jews were very suspicious of the government and very opposed to the government's attempt uh, of even a slightly hint anything that has a whiff of acculturation. I think, though, that the problem with that is um, the same problem I have with Zionism and my Satmar friends. Uh, I will oftentimes uh, tell my Satmar friends, um, you know, that um, Israel this, Israel that, and they will always quote, you know, very um, 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 tough language from Satmar Rabbi about the Melchama with Zionism, the war against Zionism. And in my mean modes, I tell them, you know what? The war is over and you lost. <laughs> you know? uh, I, I think that we're dealing with a different reality than the reality um, at those times in Europe. Uh, this is no longer the reality we're dealing with because um, it's not what the government wants. The government has zero interest uh, in having us, having them, I should say, the Haredi community, you know, acculturated or assimilated. Um, and we see this kind of change reflected in Allah, as um, some of you might know. Um, Masira, right? Kind of telling to telling on the to the government on people. Uh, one of the harshest rules in Shulchan Arach, right? It's kind of something that um, people who do that deserve severe punishment and so on and so forth. If you look at contemporary response, they will tell you that those halachot don't apply anymore today because the government is not the government that they were talking about, right? This is a different government, a different makeup, a different uh, goal. So I think that part of the education uh, that the Haredi community needs to go through is to develop trust of the government and recognize that these are not, this is not the government of uh, Stalin, this is not the government of, you know, other times in Jewish history where they had some ambitious goal to change Jews and, you know, um, steal them away from Judaism. That's not their goal at all. Um, in fact, I remember when I was, um, when I was learning in Satmar, they used to always tell the story about this, this doctor who, a uh, Haredi guy who went to medical school and he became a doctor and stayed very from. And the Yismach Moshe, who was the great, 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 great grandfather of the Satmar Rebbe, apparently used to tell him almost every day, you know, every day I daven that you should 
convert out of Judaism because you are the biggest challenge to my project. I claim that if people go to college, if people get an education, they will stop being Jewish and you to prove to people otherwise. And I think that that fear is what drives people uh, tremendously. And I think we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be sensitive to that, but also at the same time, uh, be insistent that um, these are apples and potato chips, as they say. They're comparing two different kind of governments um, that are not the same at all. Um, you know, uh, and I know that in the Haredi community, that is not uh, the way this is understood. But, um, you know, oftentimes there's this midrash. Um, the source of the midrash is not clear. Uh, the Hassam Sofer quotes it a lot. Um, Ellie Frischer is a friend of mine, uh, has written a whole essay about that. But basically, there's this midrash uh, which says that the reason why the Jews were redeemed from Egypt is because Shloshinu Etchmam, Lishonam, and Malbusham. They didn't change their names, they didn't change their language, and they didn't change their clothing, right? And that becomes a big, you know, formative um, source in the Haredi community for why people maintain their Hebrew and Jewish names. They will not take on non-Jewish names. Uh, the same with the clothing, why there's such a, you know, uh, the commitment to traditional clothing. Um, and uh, also why, you know, adopting English is such a no-no. Um, but, but, but many have made the argument that, yeah, when you don't have other means to um, connect you to the Torah, like in Mitzrayim, then you have to kind of be very adamant about not changing your name, not changing your language, and not changing your clothing. But when there are other things that kind of um, make us uh, passionate and devoted to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then maybe perhaps we don't have to insist, be insistent so much on that. And I think that's the basis why in the modern sex community, we do find people who, you know, in their professional worlds, they're identify as Martin or as Isidore. Um, they're not transgressing that midrash that says that they didn't change their names because there's a different reality. Um, but I think it takes time to recognize. And I think finally, along those lines, um, the other thing that I think is 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 is, um, is is something that a community is having a hard time transitioning is something that I think a lot about my father, Zichron uh, Libracha. My father, Zichron Libracha, um, worked in 47th Street. Uh, he was a blue collar worker in 47th Street, meaning he was not a businessman. He worked uh, just as a employee in one of the uh, one of the steps in preparing a diamond stone. And he was able from that job to support the family of nine, we were the seven of us plus my mother and father, really Bederich Kavot. Uh, he had he didn't have a secular education at all, uh, but he was industrious. He was dedicated. He was committed. And he would be at you know in the office at seven o'clock every morning and uh, be uh, there until seven o'clock in the evening, and that allowed him to provide for the family. Um, and oftentimes people will use examples like that. People in the community will use examples like that and say, look. Why is it necessary to have an education? Look, people like you know, like you know, my father and many people uh, of his generation who were able to support their family without a serious education. But I have to say the truth that even my father, towards the end of his life, as what he was doing became much more, um, you know, technology took over the, the majority of what he was doing. It was actually harder to kind of still make that bechavod living that he made uh, for many, many years. And I think that's another change that I think the Haredi community is having a hard time with um, getting getting used to is the fact that yes. The previous generation did not necessarily need uh, a advanced and high level education in order to support support themselves uh, with dignity and with uh, integrity, uh, but today it's different. Um, so I think those of us who want to see change in the community need to be sensitive to the historical reality and the uh, practical sociological reality that once upon a time, uh, the opposition to government imposed change was very strong. So that's kind of the main point that I wanna, I wanna make. Um, then I wanna make just two, two uh, quick points, and um, I thank Professor Helfand for actually memorizing that list uh, because people always make the mistake of thinking that when the government says we want to introduce secular education, we're talking about Shakespeare and, uh, you know, and who knows whatever else of the, uh, you know, secular um, 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 writings and secular thinkers and secular philosophers. When the reality is, as the list shows, uh, that's not what 
it's about it all. It's math, science, English, history, and the other 15 things that Rabbi Helfand, Dr. Helfand memorized, none of which are, you know, social studies, not in the humanities. So it's not like the government wants to kind of intrude on the area in which people form beliefs, form convictions, from, form, you know, engagement with culture. It's primarily the areas that will allow people to be able to be self-sufficient and support themselves and also know what to do when there's a fire. <laughs> um, but, um, and I think that's, again, something that I don't think has come through um, sufficiently uh, in the community. Uh, people are terrified that, oh, my kids are going to start reading all this terrible literature and uh, they're going to be exposed to Romeo and Juliet or God forbid something worse. Maybe even perhaps Ginsburg's poems, God forbid, Chaz uh, And I think it's something that needs to be made clear. Um, and then finally, um, and this is a little bit of a harsher critique, is that for me personally, and uh, you know, um, I'm not saying it affects me personally as people will push back. I'm not in the community anymore. Uh, we're raising two children um, outside of the community. Our two kids go to modern Orthodox schools. They don't go to Haredi schools. So it's not me personally, but uh, it is my relatives. Um, you know, as I tell people oftentimes, I have about six to 700 relatives in that community and I'm not making, you know, up the number. If you do the math, it's pretty simple. And my mother was one of 11. Each of them had eight kids, each of whom had eight kids. So by the time you get to the second generation, we're talking about four or five 600 people. And by the time you get to the third generation, uh, we're talking about something close to a thousand people. Um, as I like to joke, when we walk down the street, I oftentimes walk down the street in Williamsburg and Barbara with my wife, and uh, I'll see someone and I'll say, oh, that's my cousin. And I'll say, okay, fine, that's very nice. And then we'll walk another half a block and say, oh, that's my cousin too. And my wife will laugh. I say, it's not a joke. That's my cousin too. You have a big family. So it is something that is directly um, affecting me in the sense that it's my mishpacha. And I find it pretty um, bothersome, to put it mildly. Uh, I must probably could use stronger language. When I see people, I mean, I see the, who the people are that defend uh, the, the community. And it reminds me very much of something that you'll think is not analogous, but I want to explain to you why it's analogous. Uh, within the within the Orthodox community, there's a big discussion about what to do people who kind of identify as gay, right? And how do we kind of find them, include them, how we find space for them. There is a small strand within the Haredi community, within the Orthodox community, I should say, that's a, you know, we have to try to convince men who identify as gay to try to get married with a straight woman and raise a family and whatever. And whenever I hear that, I feel screaming out to that person and say, but if your daughter came to you and said, dad, I met this guy, amazing person. We've been going out for six months. I love him. He's incredible. He just happens to be gay. Do you think I should marry him? And we all know the answer would be, no, don't do that. You deserve a person who loves you and can be attracted to you. So I find when people say, oh, we should marry off gay men to straight women, it means straight women, not my daughter, someone else's daughter, that would be fine. And I feel that some of the defenders of the, uh, the Haredi opposition to the government's attempt to introduce um, a more uh, diverse education are the kind of people who they themselves would never send their children to those schools, right? Uh, if you would ask them, would you want your child to go to a school that does not allow any secular education? And of course, the answer would be, God forbid, of course I think my kid deserves an education. And I can't help but look and it's kind of almost yell out. So if your child deserves an education, a well-rounded education so they can function in the 21st century, why do you think that the Haredi person's child uh, deserves any less? And I find it bothersome. Um, I'm tempted to assign ulterior motives to them, which I struggle not to do. Uh, I want to believe that it's genuine and it is uh, lishma, although I have my suspicions. Uh, but I find it really troublesome uh, when someone would defend a system uh, that there's no doubt in my mind that there is nothing in the world that would get them uh, to do uh, that very thing which they defend for others. 
Um, and then finally, um, and with that I'll end, is the whole, uh, the New York Times expose. Um, it's been painful, it's been hard, it's been difficult. Uh, the New York Times has shown a light on a lot of the unpleasant aspects of this, uh, this kind of, um, you know, approach to education, uh, other things that have to do tangentially with education and so on and so forth. Um, and I know it hurts um, and it only saddens me that the reaction often is, oh, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. And it just reminds me, and with that I'll end, uh, something that my grandfather who was in the community and was a member of the community and was able to, you know, self-deprecate. So when he was in the community, uh, very often if someone would do something that was uh, not in line with the community, they would say, oh, he's an apicorus, right? Apicorus was kind of a term that was thrown around, a heretic was thrown around very much. And my grandfather would always joke and say, you know, being an Apicurus is quite hard. You don't become an Apicurus that easily. You got to work on it for years and years and years to finally reach that, you know, Bechavadig moniker of being an Apicurus. I think the same is with anti-Semitism. I think we need to preserve uh, the term anti-Semitism for people who really hate Jews and uh, are out to destroy or to harm Jews. Uh, I don't think that's the goal of the New York Times at all. Um, I have been... Full disclosure, I've been involved uh, at least with the first article to some degree. I mean, I spoke to the reporter several times, uh, mostly for background, so sort of help her understand the community. And there is not an ounce of hatred or animosity. Uh, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing uh, sometimes uh, when uh, we are shown a mirror for ourselves, uh, we notice things that we otherwise uh, would not have noticed. And I think it's a good thing. And like I said, uh, using the the anti-Semitism cudgel um, actually uh, is counter, uh, counterproductive. Okay, thank you so much, Rabbi Katz, for sharing your experience and your stance with us. Um, now, Professor Helfand, if you can please take the next five to 10 minutes to respond to Rabbi Katz's remarks. Sorry, just finding the mute button. Um, so first of all, uh, really great listening to Rabbi Katz. Um, this was, I feared one of the challenges of this conversation were going to be the, the level of agreement. Um, so let me try to find something that I disagree with, which feels like a weird thing to be doing, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so first of all, I would, I would just like to say, like, I come to this, I feel like in many ways, like an outsider, this conversation. Um, as Rabbi Katz, I think, like, uh, did a great job uh elucidating like I don't have at least I don't think I have a lot of relatives in that community um certainly if I walked down the street I wouldn't have that same kind of experience that way I don't have like the direct vested interest in it which is why I you know when I present or talk about it I talk about it very academically you know what's the 14th amendment what are the contours where do we draw lines how does it work um so maybe there's something almost unfair about my talking about it um I'm not sure what to make of that I'm still here so I guess I'll continue talking um, I do, you know, one thing that I want to push back on, you know, you know, Rabbi Katz's point, which is a really interesting point about like, um, of course, of course, these schools should be allowed to exist, just don't, I don't want it for my children. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, when I look at this topic, and again, maybe it's because it's academic, and it's not, you know, it's not me or my direct community. Um, I myself affiliate as, I don't know. I don't like the term modern or orthodox, I don't know, garden variety orthodox. How about that? Um, um, when I look at it, the question I find myself asking is, you know, to what extent does the law protect the choices of parents? I want my choices to some extent, not unfettered, but to some extent protected. And so when I see a difficult or challenging case, I ask myself, you know, to what extent are those choices protected? And so when I say, I think there should be limits as to what the government can do, um, I think I'm making a principled argument about the, the degree of discretion the law affords, so that even if I want a different kind of education for my child, I want the same um, rights and authority that I want to give to other, other communities, other individuals, even if they would make a different choice than I would. And, and in that way, I don't I don't see, maybe I should, but I don't see it as that's good for you. I just wouldn't do it. 
I would say we all should make choices. And in life, people think lots of different things. Um, and that seems that seems like a fair and principled, a principled argument. Um, on the flip side, you know, one of the things that I've thought quite a lot about when I was look when you look at kind of the big interest that I tried to articulate as to what I think, you know, provides the government with this authority, you know, I characterize them in very, um, I don't like the term secular, let's call them non-religious terminology, you know, economic self-sufficiency and civic engagement. But I think it would be a mistake to characterize those as, as just non-religious, you know, um, when, when the Talmud, when the Gemara describes um, the obligations of, of parents to their child, um, you know, to have an umnus kalo unakia, an obligation to provide them with a, a craft that is um, uh, straightforward, let's call it. Oh, somebody's going to quibble with my translation. Straightforward and, and clean. And, and when the, you know, the commentators say clean, like clean that there shouldn't be any sin in it. You know, the idea that if you're not economically self-sufficient, you know, the, the Talmud describes it as leading to listless, to theft. You know, that there's a there's a moral architecture to economic self-sufficiency that I think is deeply embedded in the halachic system, that we have an obligation to teach a trade to our children so that they have a way of, of earning a living that doesn't require them to engage in behavior that's immoral and inappropriate. And so I think of some of these um some some of these underlying values that are captured in in American law are also deeply important to us as a as a community. I don't want to put that kind of distance. Certainly people again will have different views on this subject, but I don't think it's it's foreign um, to the halachic system. I'd even say questions of civic engagement, which also goes to Rabbi Katz's point about how the government now is different, our experience is different. You know, um, I was recently trying to identify kind of traditional halachic, hashkafic, um, you know, those um, trying to describe the, the content and the philosophy of, uh, of the Jewish tradition. You know, where might, where does, can we, do we see this concept of civic engagement? One of the interesting things is you begin to see more of it in 20th century writing from people like Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, um, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, you know, instances where, you know, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein would encourage voting or um, Rabbi Soloveitchik would encourage um, individuals to serve as chaplains in the armed forces, that there was a responsibility to the government. That's something you only see um, more recently. And I, I suspect that's because of what Rabbi Katz said that, you know, back in the day, um, you know, in the 13th century, the Jewish community wasn't trying to figure out how to be civically engaged for for a whole host of reasons that you can imagine. Um, I don't I don't know if I need a quote fiddler on the roof, but you get the idea. Um, and so, you know, this is a little bit of a newer phenomenon. But again, I don't think these ideas are foreign. And, you know, I, in that way, I want to kind of pick up on some of the things that Rabbi Katz said. One last thing I want to press over here. You know, Rabbi Katz um, highlighted the way in which that the government is not trying, or at least the present day government, which strikes me as correct and captured in some of these sources like Rabbi Feinstein, and Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, not trying to um, cause people to assimilate. I, I want to push back a little bit on that. And it, it's not assimilation. I think that's right. But, you know, in the political process, when legislatures get together and they decide what ought to be required as education, you know, their motivation often is that they have things that they see as deeply important. And therefore, you know, one of the great battlefields of what's important is what we decide to educate our children about. Um, and you can see the way in which that process is not necessarily built to generate a good list of pedagogical requirements. Um, this might be a bit, you know, I mentioned the civic civics requirements and the Irish potato family. You know what, that's it's actually in a list of three things the uh, education law in New York requires. It requires teaching about slavery, the Holocaust, and the Irish potato famine. Now, I want to think about that. It's actually not a joke. When you think about that, it's not surprising. You know, the Catholic Church has a lot of influence, obviously, in uh, New York. Um, the Jewish community has a lot of influence in New York, not in a nefarious way, and like uh, want to impart values um, into the broader uh, the broader community, and also slavery, obviously, as Americans. These are three um, uh, historical events that are of deep importance to various communities, and you see the way in which the importance to particular communities gets reflected in the law. But you can see how that process can also go awry because, you know, not necessarily everybody thinks what everybody thinks is important is necessarily um, geared towards promoting values like economic self-sufficiency and civic engagement. And it might be the case that today when we see the big four and that list of eight, we say this is fine. 
but it also may give us cause to worry when we think about the process that generates these lists. And untethered from clear values, we can see how it can be a problem, maybe. One last thing. You know, there's the law and kind of like the big picture law, and then there's also like the bureaucratic imp uh, implementation of it. I don't know enough about what's going on on the ground, but I hear little bits and pieces. I also worry about how that will be uh, implemented on the ground. You know, there's already some cases that have come up under these new rules where, you know, certain people implementing these rules do want to see what exactly is being taught, what exactly is being read. And you can see how somebody's saying, well, I don't think that list for English is good enough. I think you should be teaching these other things that are familiar to me. And I guess what I want really want to leave uh, leave everybody with is if we don't have very clear goals for what education is trying to do, and we don't have um, clear constraints both on the political process and bureaucratic implementation, you know, some of the worries, I don't want to say assimilation, but the way in which um, others try to impart things to children that are deeply important to them can start to press an educational system a little bit off in terms of its trajectory. And that's why I think it's so deeply important to really focus on what are we trying to accomplish and do we have a way of making sure that the education does that 100% because we should not falter on that even the slightest, but we should also have a way to see when it's, it's going a little too far. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Katz, it's now your turn to respond. Yeah, I mean, I I I would go uh, I would uh, go you one better, Avi, uh, if I may. That you know, in some ways, it's a superficial distinction uh, between you know um, the sciences and the humanities and so on and so forth. Everything is a culturation, right? I mean, if you learn physics, if you learn um, chemistry, you're inevitably acculturated to the larger discourse, to the larger conversation. Um, so, so I guess I guess a better way to kind of um, um, crystallize what I was saying, and granted, well, I'd say two things. I would say number one, um, that then means that when it gets down to the nitty gritty, of course, we have to be very, very careful about what it is that's taught and how it's taught and how it's taught in a way that kind of you know uh, does not allow for you know broader uh, acculturation. But um, I don't remember there's a there is a joke which is kind of borderline off color, but uh, with uh, with Churchill and a member of, of a member of, of of the parliament, and something along the lines of "We're not debating whether you are; we're just debating of what you're." Pri something I don't remember the line, but I think some people know what I'm referring to. But my point is, uh, we're no longer discussing whether or not the Haredi younger generation is being acculturated. Um, I've said long ago that the walls of the kind of, so to speak, virtual ghetto that the Haredim successfully built up along themselves has long, has a, long ago been penetrated by the internet. Uh, the moment you can stay within and still be outside, the walls mean nothing anymore, right? So we're no longer at that point where we can protect ourselves from acculturation uh, and avoid any form of acculturation. That ship has sailed. Uh, secular culture, secular, you know, uh, discourse, secular attitudes have made their way into the community. And I would argue, why not be in control of where that goes and how that happens? Because the fear of acculturation in the kind of, you know, lowercase um, a, lowercase acculturation um, is over. Uh, the community's younger generation is exposed to the world outside. And they want the world outside. They're interested in the world outside. Why not give them a certain kind of um, exposure that would be beneficial? Uh, I remember, I mean, I hope again, I don't know why I'm filled with off-color thoughts tonight. Uh, I remember they used to say always a joke in yeshiva that one of the, what are, what are the first words that a Haredi uh, guy learns in English? And it was the four-letter curse word. And the joke used to be, why is that? Because they don't have proper training, they end up working with the lowest level of 
you know, blue collar workers who don't have, you know, that kind of advanced knowledge of English. And that's their exposure. Their first exposure is to people who curse a lot. And then they come home and say, oh, I've learned a few English words. I'm like, no, that's not how people who are, you know, professionally trained um, speak. So I think that if anything, the acculturation can actually be geared towards a more positive direction by allowing um, the allowing some form of education to the community. That's number one. Number two, I think that you know, Dr. Helfand is a legal scholar, and I think that you know those legal concerns are very legitimate and very true, and I don't want to dismiss them. But I want to kind of say one more thing that I think it's important to keep in mind there, and then I'll finish. Um, maybe perhaps there's a few minutes still left for questions. The other thing that we don't know, and I think maybe we do know, is who leads the fight against government involvement? Is it the laity, is it the masses, or is it a particular segment within the community? And my guess is that at a minimum, there is a significant voice within the community that actually is in favor of it. But of course, they cannot you know, speak out because if they dare speak out, it can be consequential. But I wouldn't be surprised that the numbers are far greater that than we even imagine. And the predominant, um, you know, voice of opposition is people who are wedded to the status quo. Uh, the people who want to maintain the status quo, the rebels and their, um, you know, um, lay, um, you know, cohort and entourage, they love the status quo because that gives them a tremendous amount of, um, you know, I don't want to use power in the negative term, but kind of stature and leadership in the community. My point is that it begs the question of when there becomes a clash of values, right? On the one hand, Dr. Helfand says, listen, there are legal uh, criteria, there are legal considerations. But on the other hand, there's also the value of not suppressing the voice of the community. And then I wonder like, like which of those two is more important to me, even as a secular discourse, even as a non-Jewish discourse, there is a big segment of the community whose voice is suppressed um, and is not being allowed to speak up. And how do I reconcile that with the legal considerations and the legal um, problems that this process presents? So I think that's kind of another um, another um, variable to put into the mix. So yeah, okay. I don't know if you wanna open it up for five minutes that we have left for uh, questions, uh, but I definitely did not expect that conversation to be so vibrant and so alive. So thank you, Avi. So respectful. <laughs> um, but yes, it is definitely time now for some Q&A. So if anyone has any questions, we would love to hear them. I think there's a question in the, uh, uh, there were at least one or two questions in the chat. I saw from Lainey Bergman. Yep. Okay, I don't need Okay. I don't see a question though. <laughs> I think that Lainey, Lainey is asking. Um, I mean, I learned Lainey full disclosure. Lainey's a <laughs> social friend, uh, but as I know Lainey. Uh, Lainey writes, I've heard the opinion that secular studies steal time from learning. That's one. And two, when I was working in Turo, we had Bukharam who came to us that we characterized as illiterate in three languages. They spoke Yiddish, had Hebrew Aramaic, and were able to express themselves in English on a basic level. New York State has learning standards that can be met regardless of content. The abolishment of the standards, um, the standard non-regions high school diploma is problematic. So I think number one is a question. Uh, if I may, and Lani, tell me if I misunderstand. Lani uh, says, listen, um, one of the arguments that are made against secular studies is Bittl Torah. And perhaps for people who are outside of the community might dismiss it and think it's a joke. It's not. It is a real concern. I mean, this is a community that values um, optimal, you know, non-negotiable dedication to learning Torah. And if you can introduce a robust a general studies curriculum, it will come out of the time uh, they otherwise would spend uh, to learn Torah. Um, I'm stumped. I'm stumped. I, mean, I honestly am stumped because, you know, I'm one of those people for whom the religious education worked. I got an, a phenomenal Jewish education 
And it came because of the fact that it was an expectation of absolute dedication. That's all I did all day long, day after day after day. And it came partially informed by a deep belief in the value of limited Torah and also the, uh, so to speak, transgression of Beatle Torah. And for some people, that is a genuine argument against introducing a robust um, secular studies uh, curriculum. I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a good answer. I think there is an answer somewhere out there, which I'm still looking for, uh, but I don't have. I mean, seriously, if I met the person for whom it's true, and there is a lot of people like that, um, it's a good question. I don't know, Dr. Hoffman, do you have any any responses to the Vittle Tara question? Um, I think it I think it lives well in a legal environment that tries to find space for individuals to make uh, choices unless unless um, it's necessary to do otherwise. Um, yep. So uh, I I guess I take comfort in the question. Yeah, and it's genuine. It is genuine, absolutely genuine for some people. Does anyone else out there have another question for our guests? Rev Katz, I have a quick question. Um, how, how is that community thinking about the idea of Chilo Hashem in regards to kind of relationship to this political issue? Yeah, don't ever, ever say that to a Haredi guy. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I just no, no, that. no. I mean, I mean, I mean, we used to joke when we were kids, we used to joke about, you know, how uh, the modern Orthodox people or modern Orthodox Jews always, you know, throw Chilol Hashem at us. You know, well, guess what? Going to Paris is a Chilol Hashem too, right? And why do you wear Paris? It looks weird. And I think the traditional conventional answer, and we can, you know, talk through whether in this deed it has a basis in halacha, is that if the the, the solution to Chilol Hashem entails, you know, something that's incompatible with the Torah, then of course, obviously, the observance of Torah trumps the concern of Chilol Hashem. So I think that Chilol Hashem does not have much currency when it comes to something that they believe uh, it's usher, you know, um, shaking hands. Again, we can debate whether shaking hands with a woman is usher or not usher. For those who think that it is halachically problematic, Hillel Hashem does not become a counterpoint because, okay, if it's us, it's us, and, uh, you know, let Hashem take care of himself, so to speak. What should I do? It's not my responsibility to worry for Hashem's kavod when it is that very same Akadosh Baruch who told me, do not do that. And uh, I've oftentimes seen that when people try to kind of make the arguments of shaking hands, well, what's with Hillel Hashem? And it's just a cultural ignorance that I think uh, people um, are not aware of. Yeah. Okay. I might, um, want to, I might want to even press even harder on that, even though the question wasn't for me. Yeah, please. I mean, one would certainly, I mean, the idea that uh, individuals um, pursuing um, the claims of their conscience um, captured in uh, their perception of halachic requirements, I mean, it's not, I probably would describe it slightly differently than Rabbi Katz. It's not as if that trumps Chil Hashem. I mean, that's not what Chil Hashem is. Um, and in this way, Judaism is often, I mean, has always been, you know, countercultural with a, a, a set of values that um, is often at odds with majoritarian culture uh, that sometimes finds majoritarian culture anathema. And the idea that we conflict and clash with norms around us um, doesn't by itself um, generate a anything even close to Chil Hashem. Now, of course, you know, then you have to get into the merits of the issue. But, you know, Chil Hashem, it strikes me as the wrong question. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's it's not uh, like you can't get there without having the first conversation. And obviously, um, I think there's a there are strong, strong halachic and hashkafic, you know, strong philosophical and, and um, you know, questions of, of Jewish obligation here. Um, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem at the heart of this at this at the heart of this debate of course you know some of the other stuff that allegedly go and there's other stuff there's other stuff surrounded here going on and there have been lots of you know new york times articles we've talked about that you know rebecca has talked about that a little bit and and that's different but at the core of this issue strikes me as like a a clash of values and i certainly hope it would never be the case that people advancing core halachic uh, obligations and values would ever be accused of Hashem. <laughs> 
I see a hand up. You know what? I'll go with the, um, uh, Dr. Hoffman's answer. I'm taking back my answer. <laughs> it's much better. <laughs> There's an iPhone that has a question. Yes. And you can unmute yourself and ask when you're ready. Hello, Chaim? Uh, oh, well, now... Now that it's a lot more serious. <laughs> no, no, I, I just want to say something to Rabbi Katz about, about um, Beetle Torah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that, the, you know, this is obviously not a universally accepted opinion. And nevertheless, one, it, it comes down to a basic point about the nature of education and whether, whether, whether education can be classified as something that's that's Beetle Torah at all. Um, in other words, education has, I mean, I guess you don't have to go so far as the Rambam to claim that, you know, that, that a more expansive idea of what Torah is. To understand that being a human being, a mensch, functioning in society, is part of what the Torah requires. Um, and there's certainly, you know, if there were a willingness uh, to, and an openness, and if we would get past the, the psychology that you presented about the fear and 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 historical experience and and uh, and you know uh, notions of Rome and and paganism and 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 that type of contamination and corruption, um, you know we we we, we would understand uh, education in in a more beneficent way, uh, which is what you were arguing that is consistent with Torah because mm -hmm. in order to be a Torah person, you need to be a functioning human being. And, and uh, you know, so I, I, I think there's an argument that could be made if people were willing to think beyond a very narrow understanding of what it means to be a Torah scholar. That's number right. one. Number two, and, and this I think is not, you know, this is not my own idea, and you know this. How many people are Yisafsa Katzes? In other words, there are a few people who are masmidim, who are, who are constantly learning and who become excellent. Uh, we've developed a whole culture that that considers uh, total devotion to be a value. Uh, it, it, I, I think the negative, perhaps we should be more outspoken. There's a certain fear in your respect for the community and this idea to say enough. You know, th this is not what the tradition thought of. Uh, and, 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 and expects. Um, and even though, uh, you know, some people see this, and this is an internal uh, discussion, has nothing to do with the government. The government, I mean, this is what we have to argue amongst ourselves. What are you doing here in, 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 in claiming that this uh, sort of uh, uh, complete uh, isolation and devotion is the way in which uh, that, that, that produces what the, a Torah personality uh, should be? So right. I, I mean, I think I think you can move somewhat on that question, and, right. and don't have to feel hamstrung by it. Right, yeah, right, right. So thank you, first of all, um, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Seidelfeld, for the flattery. I always appreciate flattery. Uh, but uh, uh, quickly on both of your points is that number one, uh, going to your second point first, is that um, yeah, of course, that is a conversation that needs to be had, um, and you know, there is a lot to be brought to bear on this conversation. I mean, it's interesting that Dr. Helfand talked about, you know, in the 20th century, you'd start seeing, you know, a consciousness towards um, civic engagement and all of that. But let's not forget that in the Mishnah that talks about the Memches Dvarim Torah Niknat Behem, right? The yeah. 48 attributes, Yishuv Olam is one of them, right? Being yes. part of a civil society, depending on how you're going to translate that. Um, so that's number one. Going back to your first point, not to get all fancy, but if anybody is really interested in a very beautiful articulation of the point that you made, Rabbi Seidefeller, I would recommend you look up, if you have access to the Sefer, the Orsa Meach's commentary on Hilchas Talmud Torah, who beautifully okay. articulates essentially your point that when you are pursuing the essentials of life, it's not your Mavatl Tamatara for some greater or more important thing. It's built in into the process, into the process uh -huh. of learning Torah. Yom Avalila means Yom Avalila minus the times that you need to do whatever it is that you need to do in order to live a healthy and a good life. So, yeah, I agree with uh -huh. you, but it's a conversation uh -huh. that needs to be had. It's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, can you send, can, send me the precise mock call? Okay, I appreciate it. 
If you look at our semifinal Kustamator again, I don't want to get technical here. Okay. It's, there's not that it. many. Okay. It's about five pieces, so it's, you'll see the long piece. You'll, you'll find it right away. It's a beautiful piece. Okay. I encourage okay. everybody to read it if interested. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. I believe we have time for one more question. Um, if not, I'm just going to take this opportunity to thank everyone for tonight. Um, I myself am a mother of young children going through the school admissions process right now, which has <laughs> been an experience in and of itself. And something that I'm personally grappling with is the question that we discussed tonight um, and what I want their education to look like. So thank you um, for shedding some for shedding some much needed light on this for me personally and for everyone watching. Um, it was truly enlightening. So thank you guys. Um, Rabbi Shmuley, I'm handing it over to you to, to wrap things up. You know, just expressing my gratitude as well and uh, look forward to continuing this conversation together. Thank you all so much for joining. Well, too. thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, everybody.